Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. This is the final week of our five-week sermon series, Easter Encounters. That's because this is the last Sunday of Eastertide when we reflect on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That means that next Sunday, as you heard Pastor Dave say earlier, is Pentecost Sunday. We remember how the Holy Spirit came to the church after the ascension of Jesus, which is what today is all about. It is Ascension Sunday on the church calendar, and the Easter encounter that we'll see today is the last time the risen Jesus was seen in the 40-day period between Easter morning and the ascension when Jesus was taken up into heaven. And then about 10 days later, the disciples will receive the Holy Spirit in the upper room where and when the church is officially born. You can read all about that in the book of Acts, Luke's second volume to his gospel, which we'll be in this morning. So if you just happen to be joining us for the first time in this final sermon in our series, or if it helps to be reminded of what we've covered, we began with uh, Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene's Easter encounter at the empty tomb. And then we saw where Jesus catches up with two disappointed disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he revives their dead aspirations. And then we looked at Thomas's Easter encounter with the risen Jesus and the lessons we can learn from his doubt and his confession that Jesus is God. And then last week, we looked at the scene where Jesus had breakfast by the seashore with seven of his disciples, and then he reinstates Peter as the leader of the eleven. Which brings us to the last Easter encounters. And we'll be looking at two scenes today, when Jesus gives his disciples the Great Commission and when Jesus offers parting words before ascending to heaven. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, our main scripture reading today. Acts chapter 1. And I know that you were just standing, but if you would, stand again with me as we read from our sacred text together. If you don't have your Bible, you can simply listen as I read. Acts chapter 1, beginning of verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? 
He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated. The evidence for the resurrection really is astounding if you can approach it all with an open mind and an open heart. And be honest about your own preconceived ideas, your historical, social, and cultural location, which shapes your view of the world in the present. We often think that the way that we view the world and the way we think about what is real and what is not real, that everyone shares that view, but it's not true. Not only is the East different from the West, but people have viewed the world and understood it differently throughout different time periods. And so it is quite arrogant at times for us to think that we have somehow finally arrived in this age of technology and science, that we know how things really are and that these things don't happen anymore, when most of the world will, would scoff at that kind of thinking. And so this challenges us Christians in the West to be sure. But as I've said before, the reasons for putting your faith in the risen Jesus are pretty good. And to begin with, just consider all the resurrection appearances recorded in the New Testament. You can see this, uh, this graph here. I don't know if you can see that where you're sitting. It may be a little small. Uh, but these are all of the appearances that uh, we have of the risen Jesus in the Gospels. Who he appeared to, where he appeared when he appeared in, in that 40-day period, and the references that we have to that in the Gospels in the New Testament. You'll see there are 11 there. But you may recall last week I said that there is one more appearance that we do need to count, that being the experience that Saul of Tarsus, known to us as the Apostle Paul, had on the road to Damascus. You remember why he was on the road to Damascus? He was on the road to Damascus because he was a zealous, pious Jew who believed that if these so-called Christians, if these followers of this crucified Messiah continued on, that God, you know, they were in danger and that God might bring on his wrath upon Israel. Paul saw what he was doing as a good thing. And his encounter with the risen and ascended Jesus would make the 12th resurrection appearance of Jesus in the New Testament. While some skeptics want to say that Paul simply had a vision of some kind, not an encounter with the risen Jesus, so they don't want to count that, I think that we should push back on that and say that Paul did, in fact, experience the risen Christ, even if it was a voice coming from a bright light, as Paul describes it, and say that Jesus appeared to him this way for at least two reasons. One, as we'll see today, Jesus had already ascended to heaven. He doesn't leave heaven to reveal himself to Saul of Tarsus. 
before Jesus goes in and out from the heavenly realms into the earthly realm when he appears and disappears. But with Paul or Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, it is as if the Lord pulls back the curtain where Saul can see into the heavenly dimensions, but Jesus doesn't leave there. We could think of it that way. Nevertheless, this is an encounter with the risen Jesus. And the second reason, possibly, that Jesus appears to Saul of Tarsus this way is to stop him dead in his tracks because of what he was doing. And Jesus said to Paul, you remember what he said? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And so this blinding light was just what Paul needed to open his eyes. I once was blind, but now I see, as John Newton said. But despite these Easter encounters, many are skeptical and say that there isn't enough evidence to believe the resurrection was a historical event. Besides, how can we trust the New Testament? It's ancient, it's biased, it's unreliable, some would say. Well, that's actually where I begin my own list of reasons for believing in the resurrection of Jesus. And I'd like to touch on those reasons very briefly before returning to Acts chapter 1. And I say very briefly because I could spend a seven-week sermon series just on these. So know that there's a lot more that goes into this. And if you want some books and some videos on it, I can certainly suggest those to you. Because I think that it's important. Someone may need to hear this this morning. That it's in the sanctuary watching via the live stream. And as disciples of Jesus, for the rest of us, we should, as Peter said, have an answer ready for the hope that we have. Amen? Here are seven reasons for believing in the resurrection of Jesus. As I said, I think they're pretty good. Number one, the reliability of the New Testament. I mean, this is our primary source, so we should start there. We should think about this very seriously. There are, if you don't know, over 5,600 early Greek manuscripts of the New Testament over 5,600 Greek manuscripts. Now, we don't have the originals, but we have copies of the copies. And we have over 20,000 manuscripts in various languages. There are no major differences in those manuscripts and in those copies of the copies that make any significant difference. Now, folks, that is astounding. And frankly, if you were to hold the New Testament up to other ancient documents, no other ancient document compares to the trustworthiness of the New Testament. In fact, despite what YouTube atheists say, there is more historical evidence that by far exceeds that of any other historical figure, let's say like of a Julius Caesar. There's more evidence for Jesus of Nazareth and that he lived and died and that there was an empty tomb than Julius Caesar, but nobody questions his existence. We really should give this some serious thought. And yes, you know, you might say, but they were biased. They want us to believe something about Jesus. Folks, all historians do that. I don't care what the academics say. I try to write a history that wasn't biased. We are human beings. And even the the very fact that we present certain information and, and, and disregard other information is to get people to think a certain way about history and to get people to think a certain way about the narrative. And so they're doing nothing different than what other historians would do. The second thing, the testimony of many eyewitnesses. As we saw earlier, we have well over 500 witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Paul told us this in 1 Corinthians 15, 6. 
So why should I believe Paul? Did you know that uh, of, of all of the uh, New Testament scholars, you know, right, who study, let's say, the epistles of Paul, even the most liberal of scholars, right? They want to say, I don't think he wrote this. I don't think he wrote that. This, we can't really trust this. Everyone agrees that Saul of Tarsus, known as the Apostle Paul, wrote the book of 1 Corinthians. Everybody. And so there's great confidence in that fact. And this is where in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul quotes an early Christian creed that refers to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And as I said, some of the most liberal scholars say this dates back to the first few years of the Jesus movement. You do not get any better than that when doing history. So the testimony of eyewitness, the Apostle Paul indicated that most of the folks, he said this, 1 Corinthians 15, most of the folks who witnessed Christ were still alive at the time he wrote this epistle. And in other words, Paul is saying, if you want their names, I can give you some of them and where they live. You can call them up and you can talk to them yourself. A third reason, multiple attestation. Now, what does this mean? It means that we don't just have one history of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, as you would have with other historical figures. We have four. Four ancient biographies and the rest of the 23 books of the New Testament that all attest to Jesus in one way or another. And they're not just all Christian sources. We could include what we'd call the extra-biblical sources as well, like Josephus uh, or some Roman writers, or even the Jewish Talmud mentions Jesus. Did you know that? Several generations later, the Jewish Talmud mentions that Jesus of Nazareth was a real person. That's not even any question. What they say is he did magic and led Israel astray. (laughs) Well, that's very interesting. They couldn't even deny the miracles. Number four, the empty tomb. Every classical or biblical scholar of this historical period, Christian or non-Christian, it doesn't matter, agrees that the tomb of Jesus was empty. Did you know that? Now, now where they disagree, as you might expect, is why was it empty? Justin Martyr, an early church father, or early church writer, we call him, in the second century, recorded that people were still saying that someone stole the body. That's like over 100 years later, people were, that was their number one uh, uh, defense, right, for the, for the empty tomb, is that the body was stolen. Of course, that raises another question. Why would they nicely, neatly fold up the, the, the linen and leave that there? But anyways, some people don't want to think about that. And just to drive home that the empty tomb is believed to be a historical fact, in the realm of historical Jesus studies, they have come up with all kinds of alternative theories for why the tomb was empty and people claim to see Jesus alive. Now, if you never really even took this seriously as a historical fact, you wouldn't need to come up with all of these other theories. But this is what some of them do. They say Jesus swooned. The Romans thought he was dead, even though they were masters at execution. They just thought he was dead. The cold, dark tomb revived his body, and he came back and somehow managed to convince them that he had gone through death and come out the other side. Well, that doesn't really hold water for some people. So some think, well, they, they ex- all experienced a mass group hallucination. Right? Now, maybe one person or two people, but over 500 people, a mass group hallucination. Scientists will tell you that's never happened. It cannot happen. Some would say Jesus had a twin brother. That's how he convinced them that he was still alive. Folks, these are serious theories. <laughs> Why? Because the tomb was empty and we have resurrection claims. 
Number five, resurrection appearances. Of all the claims that people saw the risen Jesus, there are two that stick out above the rest because they were not followers of Jesus. And we should think about this. James, the half-brother of Jesus, this should come as no shock to you, was not a follower of Jesus. I mean, would you believe that your brother was the son of God? No. What was it that convinced James to follow Jesus after his death and become the leader of the Jerusalem church? Could it have been the resurrection of Jesus? The scriptures tell us he appeared to James also. And then, of course, the apostle Paul, not just a critic of Christianity and the Jesus movement, but an opponent and a persecutor, and yet he is converted. Major evidence that something happened that we cannot deny. Six, the growth of the early church. Renowned New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says that he knows nothing else that could explain the initial birth and rapid expansion of the early church except that Jesus was really raised from the dead. You see, people, they give their lives all the time for causes we would say are just bogus, but they're usually strapping bombs in themselves and killing other people, not laying their lives down and dying in the name of love. Much different. N.T. Wright states that there are two things historically secure about the first Easter, the empty tomb and the meeting with the resurrected Jesus. Nothing in Second Temple Judaism, which was the religion of Jesus' time, would have produced such a radical claim that someone would be raised to life in the middle of human history. Wright says it is therefore historically highly probable that Jesus' tomb was indeed empty on the third day after his execution, and that the disciples did encounter him and, and gave every, ex, every appearance of being well and truly alive. And lastly, number seven, the credibility of miracles. This is one we really have a hard time with as people in the West. As Christians, we should say this, though. We do not believe that faith goes against reason or science, but rather, sometimes faith goes beyond it. It is really about your worldview. Does your worldview allow for the unexplained and the supernatural or not? Or do you really think that your little mind or all of our little minds combined can understand everything mysterious about the universe? Oh, we've got it figured out. We know what is real and what is not. For us, we believe that the God who created the universe revealed himself in Jesus of Nazareth and has no problem bending or transcending the laws of physics as we know them, which, after all, he created. If you like to dig a little deeper into this one, uh, there's a scholar, New Testament scholar by the name of Craig Keener. He's written a two-volume massive work called Miracles, the Credibility of the New Testament Accounts. And Keener presents a monumental case for miraculous phenomena from late antiquity up to contemporary times. He even includes firsthand experiences of miracles. And we have this, these two volumes in, in our library if you want to check that out. Finally, to wrap up these reasons for believing, listen to this very telling quote. I could not help but include this quote. This is just powerful. This is from Paula Fredrickson, a non-Christian historian of Boston University, who said this in an ABC TV interview many years ago. She said, when being interviewed, I know in their own terms what they saw was the raised Jesus. That's what they say, and then all the historic evidence we have afterwards attests to their conviction. That's what they saw. 
I'm not saying they really did see the raised Jesus. I wasn't there. I don't know what they saw. But I do know that as a historian, they must have seen something. And we go on. Let's now return to our main scripture reading, Acts chapter 1. Let's walk through this verse by verse together. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Remember, this is the uh, writer Luke, the doctor Luke, the historian Luke. Uh, Luke is very intelligent, and uh, he writes in very sophisticated Greek. And uh, he wrote the gospel of Luke to this what we may think is a benefactor of Luke who supplied and funded this project because that would have been very costly in that time to have this much uh, papyri and to, uh, to write down all of the gospel as well as the book of Acts. Some think that. The name means lover of God, Theophilus, lover of God. So it's either a real person or he writes this to all who are lovers of God. He said, my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. All that Jesus began to do and teach. So some would say the book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. Others would say, no, it's, it's better titled Acts of the Holy Spirit or Acts of the continued Acts of Jesus even because Jesus is saying what we, or Paul is, sorry, Luke is saying what you see happening in the book of Acts is Jesus continuing to do his work through the church. Verse 2, until the day he was taken up to heaven. I'm going to say a little bit more about that in just a bit to think, think through this. What does that mean he was taken up into heaven? After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. Verse 3, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Now, we've seen some of those convincing proofs in this series, and we've alluded to others. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is about the reign and the rule of God on the earth. It's, it's what it looks like when, when the world is as is God wants it to be. And the kingdom of God always and will forever look like Jesus Christ of Nazareth. If you want to know what the kingdom of God looks like through us as human beings, you look to Jesus. That is what it looks like. Verse 4. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about on one occasion. Actually, at the end of, of Luke's gospel, in chapter 24, verse 49, he records the risen Jesus in the locked room with his disciples, giving them the command to stay in Jerusalem until they have been given power from above. Jesus also promised them the Spirit before he had died. We see this as well in John chapter 14. Jesus is telling them the Spirit will come. He's the mighty counselor. He's the advocate. He will convict the world of sin. He will remind us disciples of what Jesus has said and what it means to live this stuff out. And then verse 5, for John baptized with water. That's John the Baptist. He baptized with water. But in a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is... Luke writing, right, in Acts, and he also wrote the gospel. Remember what Luke told us at the baptism of Jesus? What symbolizes the Holy Spirit coming on Jesus? A dove. So in the same way that the Holy Spirit anointed Jesus, indwelled Jesus, filled Jesus to do his mission and ministry, Luke wants us to know through the words of Jesus, the same thing is going to happen to us who choose him, who say yes to him, and say yes to the kingdom 
of God. Verse 6, so they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Look at that. Since the disciples hear Jesus talking about the coming of the Spirit, they are wondering to themselves, will this now be the time? Is it, is it finally arrived? Because this is what they've wanted all along. Is it finally arrived, this time when Israel will get her national independence? We just can't get over this stuff in this world, can we? We, we, this nationalism is pervasive, even in the first century. They cannot shake this. They can't let it go. We get so infatuated and passionate about our own nationalities and where we've drawn lines on a map that we cannot see that the whole earth is the Lord's and belongs to the Lord. The whole cosmos belongs to Him. And He's calling us to be one people to worship one Lord, one baptism, one church, one God and Father of over all, through all, and in all. Does that sound familiar? This is the gospel of Christ. So the disciples, they're still not getting it. That's the first thing you should notice. They still don't get it. They don't understand the nature of the kingdom. It doesn't come by coercion. It doesn't come by force. It doesn't come by violence. It doesn't come by us pressing things on people and trying to win the culture wars or whatever we think. It comes through love. It comes through service. It comes through Calvary-like living, laying our lives down for the people who want to kill us. This is the nature of the kingdom. So they don't get that. They also don't get that it is for all nations. It is for all nations, which Jesus is going to say, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You'll see that in just a second. Second, they're thinking the kingdom comes all at once. And I know we all want that, right? We all just, we want the kingdom to come in its fullness. That's what we work for. That's what we pray for. That's what we live for. But the kingdom of God is slow. The spirit of God and movement moving in our church is slow. This is the way the Lord works because he's working with people and we all know we are slow. We are slow to open up our hearts. We are slow to believe. We are slow to be patient. We are slow to give the Lord a chance. So the kingdom of God is slow. God's ways are slow. Remember what Peter said, a, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day to the Lord. And he's outside of time anyway. So, you know, he's not working by our clock. Okay. They still haven't understood this. They haven't understood that the Lord is slow. The Lord is patient. The work of the Spirit is patient. Verse 7. He said to them this, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Now look, you'll notice there in verse 7, that Jesus' response isn't, no, guys, good grief. How long is it going to take for you to get this? <laughs> hey, that may be what well, we would want to respond. I mean, for goodness sakes, he's, he's already died and he's been resurrected and they still don't understand this. He doesn't chide them, though. Look at that. He doesn't chide them for continuing to get this wrong. But he instead tells them that the timing of God's plan shouldn't be their concern. Now, was their concern for a while? They thought Jesus said he's coming back. They thought it would be in his lifetime. And then they started to realize some of the apostles are dying. We better write some of this stuff down. This is how the New Testament came about. Instead, look at this. Jesus tells them that the timing of God's plan shouldn't be their concern. He'll just let them experience the sort of power the Spirit brings 10 days later. Enough talk. Let's see the show. We'll see that next Sunday. The Spirit brings them understanding and power 10 days later. And in verse 8, look at this. He corrects their nationalistic thinking. He says, But you will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The power, the power, the Greek word is dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite. We'll bring dynamite power, the Holy Spirit will, and you'll be witnesses. You'll be like, C.S. Lewis said, little Christs on the earth, sharing the gospel, bringing the kingdom through small acts of love and kindness, through the sharing of the good news. And look at this. Luke has actually given us a geographical outline of the book of Acts. In Jer- Jerusalem, Jesus said, chapter 1 through 7 is about the gospel in Jerusalem. And then he says Judea and Samaria. We see that in chapter 8 through 12 in the book of Acts. And then to all of the borders and boundaries, crossing borders and boundaries, all the way to Rome in chapters 13 through 28. That is the book of Acts. Luke is saying Jesus said it, and then it happened. And it made it to Caesar's household by the end of the book. Nothing, Luke would say, nothing is going to stop this commission that Jesus has given. Nothing is going to stop the promises that Jesus has made. Nothing is going to keep the gospel from going out to all of the earth in the kingdom transforming the planet. Now look at this image. Maybe this will help us visualize what Jesus is saying here. Maybe you can see that. You can see Jerusalem and then Judea, and then Samaria, what's happening? <laughs> right? The gospel is going out. Now, you'll see on this map, there's also some uh, different nations and lines pointing inward because this is what's going to happen 10 days later at Pentecost. There are representatives in the upper room, followers of God, followers of Christ, in the upper room, coming from all over the known world of the day to experience the power of the Spirit. And this is what Jesus had in mind when he gave us what is known as the Great Commission in Matthew's Gospel. What is the Great Commission? What is the Great Commission? If I asked you that, what would you say? What is the Great Commission? You know, in my study, I found this 2018 statistic from the Barna Group rather alarming. Look at this. When they surveyed the church and said, have you heard of the Great Commission? 51% said no. 51% said yes, but I can't recall the exact meaning. 17% said yes, and it means this. Whether they got it right, I don't know. And 6% said I'm not sure. Now, what does this tell us? I think a few things. One, churches in America don't have the Great Commission at the heart of their mission. I mean, they're not hearing it, so they don't, they don't know what it is. It's, it can't be at the heart of their mission. So it begs the question, what is their mission? What, what are our churches about? Little 20-minute TED Talks, inspiring pep rallies and concerts? What, what, what's happening? What, what are we doing? Two, I think it reveals that the church isn't properly teaching and shaping disciples or that people aren't with the church enough to be spiritually formed. And three, our post-Christian society is indeed affecting our congregations. We are so full of the world and the things of the world that we don't even know what Jesus has taught. And if this wasn't convincing enough that we had a problem back in 2018, 
And the pandemic has certainly exposed our lack of depth and commitment to discipleship as researchers and leaders predicted would happen. You know, back in March of 2020, they were saying this, 20% of your church is going to leave. They'll find reasons to not come back. Well, I mean, we had a perfect storm. We had a perfect storm of politics, of racism, and of the pandemic. People getting comfortable at home are never going to come back, they said. People don't like what you're teaching, with your position on racism, your politics, or how you're navigated mask wearing, because everything's politicized. And, you know, pastors are leaving the church in droves because they're like, is this what years of teaching and discipleship has brought us. It's extremely discouraging, as you can imagine. And of course, the statistics, they, they show this. So what is the Great Commission? Well, it's the last words of the risen Jesus given to his disciples as recorded by Matthew. And it's these last three verses that we see in Matthew's gospel. Look at this. Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. We call this the Great Commission. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Look at verse 18, all authority. Why does Jesus have all authority? Because he was obedient unto death and God vindicated him and raised him and exalted him to the right hand of the Father. Verse 19, notice Matthew here, you can't really see this in the English, but Matthew uses what is known as an arrowist passive participle to begin the sentence, which literally reads this. Therefore, after you go, make disciples of all nations. After you go, when you leave here and you go about your life, make disciples of all nations. Meaning as you leave and go about your lives, be my witnesses and see to it that more disciples are made. And not just of Jews, that was their tribe. Not just of people in your tribe, not just people the same color of skin, not just the people that look like you and walk like you and talk like you and smell like you, but all groups of people. Baptize them in the name of the God who is three and one, Father, Son, and Spirit. This is why we do this in the BIC. I think we're still the only denomination. We're the only denomination left, I believe, in, in the nation that, that baptizes Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And if you're Woody Dalton, it's like, you know, they don't get a breath. I don't do that. <laughs> and I can hear someone saying, in our pluralistic, postmodern, politically correct culture today. Now, wait a minute, Jesus. You, you just mean those who are discontented with their life, right? I mean, you surely, you don't mean you want us to make disciples of folks who are seemingly happy with their life or with their inherited religion or, or with their spiritual but not religious lives. I mean, come on, go tell everyone, make everyone a disciple. I mean, that sounds a little bit presumptuous, doesn't it? Like, like your way is better or your way is the only way. Don't you know how exclusive and intolerant that sounds today? And besides, who are we to tell others that they need the gospel? And who are you to make such a command of us? Now, maybe there's no one in the room that would actually say that, but I think if you're honest and if I'm honest, our hesitancy 
to share the gospel is because some of that thinking has seeped in to here. And Jesus says this. This is, this is Jesus' response. And I'll use his words. I myself am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus says, narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. But wide and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. Jesus says, I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and hell. Revelation. Jesus says, all authority on, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's why he can give us the Great Commission, and that is why it ought to be at the center of our lives and at the mission of the church to become like Jesus and do the things that Jesus did. Amen? This is the call of Christ on our lives, to be a disciple and to make disciples who make disciples. Friends, if we're not doing that in some shape or form, if we're not living into that in whatever job we have and whatever we're doing with our lives, then we're no different than the 51% who don't have a clue what the Great Commission is because practically and functionally, we might as well be ignorant of the Lord's last words. Lord, help us to be faithful. God gives us his grace this morning that we would respond in obedience. Back to Acts chapter 1, verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. I told you we'd come back to this. What's going on here? Taken up, a cloud hid him. What's this about? In the Old Testament, clouds always represented divinity. Now, Jesus said at his trial, you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, quoting from Daniel 7. Clouds of divinity, divi uh, divinity uh, Shekinah glory. Uh, this is the, you remember, the pillar of cloud that led the people of Israel through the wilderness. This is the sign of God's approval and divinity. Whether it was a literal cloud, it could have been, but it's also a symbol. It's a picture that Jesus is going to God. He has been exalted. He has been enthroned. This is what's going on. And he disappears into heaven. It's another dimension, folks. It's another dimension. It's not far away. It's not on a planet on the other side of the cosmos. It's another dimension. He slips behind the curtain. He's not far away. He's just out of sight. This makes me think of, uh, okay, I'm going to get a little nerdy here, String theory. Anybody ever heard of this before? String theory? Where are my peeps at? All right. 
String theory. It's a scientific theory that seeks to unite quantum mechanics and gravity and so unify all of physics into one glorious theory to make sense of everything. They call it the theory for everything. And some physicists would say that since there isn't enough room in the three dimensions in which we, if you didn't know that, we live in three dimensions. This is all we live in. We operate, we live in three dimensions. And they say there's not enough room. It doesn't make sense to put all the laws of physics. All the laws of physics can't make sense of everything. And there appears to be so much more going on in the universe. Therefore, there must be multiple dimensions that we do not see. And some theorize up to 10 or 11. We don't see them, we can't currently access them, but they are there. And just as real as the three. Actually, I think this is fitting. It's fitting with the ancient Hebraic concept of the interlocking nature of heaven and earth. And it's consistent with what's happened with the resurrected body of Jesus. Heaven and earth, multiple dimensions coming together in Christ. This is the signpost of where everything is going. Heaven and earth coming together. In verse 10, they were intently looking into the sky as he was going, and suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. They were looking intently. They were stunned. They were pondering. They were confused. What's this about? And they experienced here what is called a theophany in theology, a theophany. God is a special revelation. God has revealed himself. And maybe they thought that Jesus would reappear. He'd done this with the transfiguration. A few of them witnessed that. Remember the cloud covering the mountain, and then Jesus came back. But that's not what happens here. And obviously the disciples, they still don't get it. But what is happening? We know this now. They understood this shortly after. What's this about? What does it mean? Church, Jesus is ascending to the Oval Office of the universe. This is what Ascension Sunday is all about. Jesus, as the New Testament tells us over and over again in various places, sits at the right hand of the Father. That means Jesus is reigning and ruling from this place so that the Spirit can then descend. Jesus ascends so the Spirit can descend and be His presence and power magnified so that Jesus can reign and rule through His Easter people. Therefore, the ascension is not the absence of the presence of Christ. It will be the increased and heightened presence of Christ. It's not the loss of His leadership, intimacy, provision, and protection. It is the magnification of it. Jesus ascended, which means we have a job to do to be witnesses of the gospel for the glory of the kingdom, testifying to our own Easter encounters, and to make disciples who make disciples, baptizing, teaching, and showing folks how to follow Jesus. And folks, I'm grateful for technology, but you cannot do that by watching a live stream. You cannot do that by sitting on your couch in your pajamas watching it from home. You can't do that when we're just only engaging in the public space. We have to engage in community, in fellowship, in conversation, in back and forth, in helping one another, coming alongside of one another, in sharing life together. It is the only way disciples are made. Now, there's all kinds of ways we can approach that. There are programs, there are Bible studies, there are other kinds of ministries. There are lots of things that you can do. But the most important thing is that we're together, that we're walking together and being the people of God. Amen? Finally, verse 11, I'm getting close to the end. Verse 11 says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? 
This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. That resurrected Jesus, folks, the Jesus that Thomas touched is the same Jesus that is at the right hand of the Father right now, is the same Jesus that one day you and I will all stand before and meet and look into those Mediterranean eyes. Jesus is in the flesh, and he's coming back in the flesh. In other words, don't just stand there, the angels say. Whatever reason they're gazing, Luke may be saying to us, don't just stand there. Get going. Get on with it. There's more to come. You know, he might also be saying that it's not time to grieve your loss anymore. Right? He's out of sight, but he's not out of mind. He's present. There's more to come. Don't look back. Don't be sad. Don't get stuck in the past. The Lord is moving on, and it's time for you to move on and get ready for the next thing that God is planning through the giving of the Holy Spirit. And be encouraged, the angels told him. And they say to us this morning, for Christ will return at some point in the future to bring the fullness of the kingdom and to bring heaven and earth together once and for all, which is why we confess together. Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. Say that with me. Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. Be encouraged, church. As we bring this message in our series to a close, I want to ask you those two questions that you hear me ask all the time. What is God saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? Is the risen Jesus and the Great Commission at the center of your life? Are you living like Christ has ascended to the Oval Office of the universe and sits at the right hand of the Father? That this Lord is in charge. And how will you respond to these Easter encounters? How is the Lord inviting you to have a fresh encounter of your own? Maybe it's time for a new beginning. Maybe it's time for you to believe again. Father, it is a holy and pleasing thing to you that we are all together in person and in spirit, encouraging and consoling, provoking and inspiring, and edifying one another. And while we're not all physically together as a congregation, we want to still be about your kingdom work and not grow comfortable being apart. So help us to be intentional about discipleship. And so that when a survey is done of our church, we can say we know the Great Commission because we're about it. Help us, Lord, to further your mission in a world that's in need of healing and renewal. So much pain, so much hopelessness. But you love us, Lord. And you want to use us. Thank you for wanting to use us. Do not pass us by, Holy Spirit. Come to Grantham Church and fill us. As Lord, as we continue to navigate our way through what it seems to be the end of the pandemic, help us to hear the words of the angels to the disciples staring into the sky. Why do you stand there looking up toward heaven? Oh, Jesus, we know what you've called us to do, who you've called us to be. Forgive us for making excuses and putting off what is eternal and will last forever. 
so that you can empower us to live as your disciples and make disciples who follow you. We know that while you went up to heaven, your spirit came down to help us. You've not left us alone, nor are we lacking in purpose and hope. So bless us now as we wait, as we pray, and act on what you've called us to do. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. And all God's people said,